0: Good morning to those of you who are joining us online, it's great to be together again and uh, if you are joining us for the first time this morning or you haven't, uh, you only joined us last week, last week we had our community, Sunday this week we are back in our series in 1 Corinthians that we have been journeying through for some time and uh, we're talking about the good, the bad and the ugly in one Corinthians. And just as it has happened, I have the privilege of dealing with the ugly yet again. And so we're going to be looking at something that the Corinthians were doing, uh, that Paul actually has to call out and say, guys, you are pursuing this thing. It is not good. And you need to stop. And, uh, so that's what we, where we're going to be going in a moment. And, uh, if you are joining us this morning, you might know that for the last little while, we've been dealing with sexual immorality and marriage and the, where God has given us sex and where it's good and where it's not good and that section kind of came to an end at the end of chapter 7 and so the next three chapters fall together into one section where Paul now speaks to the Corinthian church and he says there is this thing that you are doing and what they were doing is they were going to pagan temples and they were eating food there that had been offered to idols and he says to them guys you this, this practice of yours is not great and so let me comment on that let me give you some direction on that so let me explain to you why that was happening because, you know, if you want a lack date night now with your significant other or you want to hang out with your friends and you don't want a at home, what do we do? We go to a lacquer restaurant, right? That's a, a place we love to socialize. It's a place a community is built. And unfortunately, in first century Corinth, there weren't really a lot of restaurants around. But you have this um, polytheistic culture where you've got a whole bunch of different gods and each of these gods has got a temple. And what happens for most of these gods is they... They take ritual sacrifice. And so if you were going to come worship the God, you would come bring your offering, whether it was a cow or a lamb or a goat or whatever it was, and you would come to the temple, the animal would be slaughtered, and some of that animal would be offered as a burnt offering up to the God. And then what was left of that animal would become available at the temple for you to eat, for others to eat of, and um, later on that would then be sold to the meat market if it wasn't eaten in that space. And so basically what happens is these temples begin to serve as first-century restaurants and many of the Corinthian church members they had been saved out of this pagan religion and they were now saying guys we need, let's go to these temples and let's enjoy meals there together because we are free to do that in Christ and so in the three chapters that we have in front of us Paul now addresses this practice and uh, much like we, he did in chapter seven, he addresses both what they are doing and some of the things that they have written to him about. Cause if you remember, when we started this thing, we said that this book that we have, first Corinthians, is actually the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He wrote a letter to them. They wrote a letter back to him. And now first Corinthians, the first one that we have is Paul's response to them in that. And we're going to see in these three chapters some really beautiful argument, but it's argumentation from Paul, but it is a little convoluted and a little complex. And, uh, and Paul's going to say something in chapter 8 and he's going to look like he's going to open a door for something and he's going to come back to it in chapter 10 and say actually that door's not as open as you thought it was. And so I'm going to give you, this is the nutshell rundown of how Paul addresses this practice. And and then we're going to pick up our section of it today. So what happens in the beginning of, in chapter 8, Paul says, okay guys, here there's a problem with the way in which you're making decisions. The the ethics behind your decision making is flawed. And so I'm going to address the ethics behind your decision making. Then in chapter 9, he goes to... His his defense of his right to address them, because some of them had been saying Paul's not really an apostle, so he pushes back on that, and then he models for them, and he says, this is what the right ethic looks like to make choices as a Christian. And then chapter 10, he goes to the things that they'd actually been claiming and he begins to tackle those and say, there's actually a problem with what you think is right. Your understanding of right and wrong is deficient, so let me correct that for you. And then at the end of chapter 10, he brings in some broader application and nuance as he deals with the meat that's actually sold in the market. So that's the that's the section, the three chapters. We're going to look at chapters 8 and 10 together this morning right? because they basically address the same issue. This practice of eating meat in temples. But to make that a bit more manageable, because two chapters of Scripture is quite a lot, right, we're going to look at three beliefs that the Corinthians held that informed the choices that they make. And we're going to see how Paul responds to each of those three beliefs. And I'm going to synthesize his arguments from chapter 8 and chapter 10 and draw them together as they address each of these three beliefs that the Corinthians held. That makes sense? Guys with me? Okay. Okay. So when we get to the third belief, you'll know that like the plane is coming down to land and you don't have to stay awake that much longer. All right. Here we go. Here's the first thing that the Corinthians believed. They're not Christians and they've said, guys, idols are not real gods. And therefore, we as Christians are free to eat at their temples. So so where do we get this idea? How do I know that this is what the Corinthians thought? So I want to take you back to Roland's analogy that he shared two weeks ago. And he says, it's like you're in a room listening to someone else on a telephone conversation. And you can hear the conversation that they're having, but you can't hear what the other person is saying to them. But you can kind of infer reasonably well from what you're hearing what the conversation is about. That's a little bit of what we're going to do here. But conveniently for us, in this particular section of Corinthians, in this particular belief, Paul actually quotes the Corinthian letter to him three times. And so that helps us get a very clear picture of what they believed. So here are the first three quotes, and then he's going to address the practice particularly. So chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now about food sacrificed to idols. And when you see Paul say that in a letter, it often means he's now addressing something that they have particularly addressed to him. So now about food that's sacrificed to idols, we all know that, and here's the quote, we all possess knowledge. So they've said to him, listen Paul, all of us have this knowledge. All right? And then verse 4, again, now about food, sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in all the word, world, first quote, and that there is no God but one. Second quote from the Corinthians. And then in chapter 10, verse 23, he quotes them again, and they say, I have the right to do everything. Paul writes, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do everything, but not everything is constructive. Those are the three quotes that we have from the Corinthian church. We get a bit of a sense of what they were thinking and what they believed. And then Paul now comments directly on their behavior in chapter 8 and verse 10. And he says, you know, what if someone with a weaker conscience sees you, those of you who have this knowledge and now think you're free to do whatever you're doing with your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple won't that person be emboldened to go and eat what's sacrificed to idols? So he's addressing their practice. We can see that they are going to temples, they're eating the food that's offered there, and they're doing that because they believe an idol is nothing. They believe in the monotheistic faith that there is only one God, there aren't many gods, and those idols are nothing, and so they have the right to go and to eat at these temples. And that's what's happening. And and they've got these these Corinthian believers there, they've got this newfound freedom in Christ. And and they've understood this beautiful thing. Like, there aren't many gods. There's not Apollo and Athena and Aphrodite. There is just God. And and we're worshiping him. And so we know that these other gods that we used to believe in, they don't exist. And so what does it matter that I go and eat food in their temple? Why is that significant? How can I be participating in worshiping something that I know doesn't exist? So if you track that thought variation, there's some like reasonable logic that's going on here, right? They're not totally divorced from reality in the way in which they're thinking. But Paul is now going to call out some of the problems in the way in which they're thinking. And he starts like this. He starts in verse 7 of chapter 8, and he says, guys, the problem with your thinking is this. Not everyone has the same knowledge that you have. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food... They think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. So he says, the knowledge that you claim to have as a church community is not ubiquitous among your community. Not everyone sitting here today believes the same thing that you believe. They don't share your understanding, and your actions, when you go to this temple, don't just affect yourself. There's actually a broader context to those actions that affect the people around you, and he's going to pick that idea up a little bit later. So, not everyone has the knowledge that you claim to have, but additionally, there is a problem with your knowledge. Your knowledge is actually incomplete. Verse 2 of chapter 8 says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. There's a problem with your knowledge. You have assumed, again, Corinthians, in your pride that you understand fully. Right? The Corinthians really thought they knew a lot. They thought they were super wise. I was like, guys, you, you missed it again. I'm really sorry to tell you. Uh, there's something you've got left to learn. So your understanding is actually deficient. And then in chapter 10, he goes on to tell them why their thinking is deficient. So chapter 10, 19 to 20, and he says to them, Do I mean that food that is sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol itself is anything? No, like I agree with that basic premise that you guys have put forward. But, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. So yes, the gods that are represented by idols are not actually other gods. There are no other gods. And, but that doesn't mean that those idols and those gods are spiritually neutral. Right? That doesn't follow. You see, in reality, those idols, those gods represent demons. And I don't want you to partner with demons. goes on by going back. Verse 15 of chapter 10, he says, Church, I speak to you as sensible people, right? You're, you're quite bright. So you're gonna, you're gonna follow me in this line of argument. So judge for yourselves what I have to say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share of one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not all who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? He's saying to them, church, you guys have common experience here. You understand this. When we have communion together, you recognize that all of us, we take this communion meal, we do it, and it identifies us as one body that honors one God and one king. Right? You know that for yourself. When you participate in that meal, you say, I am a Christian, and I remember Jesus and what he did for me. Just like you know that if you had to look into the Old Testament, which is the scripture that they have, if you look at the people of Israel, when they offer sacrifices to God at the altar, and then they participate in eating the meat of those sacrifices, that's a part of their worship to Yahweh. You know that, church, as you, as you look at the scriptures. So why do you think it's different now when you in, go to a pagan temple? Don't you understand that if you participate in a meal of the meat that has been offered to demons, you participate in the worship of those demons. And so, he says to them, guys, you need to flee from this practice. You need to stop doing this. Verses 14 and 21. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons as well. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So now, Corinthian church, that I've shown you that your knowledge is so flawed, I call you to run away from this practice. There is no freedom in Christ for you to carry on doing this. Immediately abandon this thing that you are doing. It is antithetical to you. It is an abomination for you. It can only lead to destruction. So that's Paul's response to their first line of thinking, they have garnered some degree of truth, but they have misapplied that truth into their lives and it has led them into sin. And he calls them. He says, guys, you've got to change your behavior and you've got to do it immediately. So we're going to spend some proper time on application at the end of the message, but I want to drop for you just two nuggets now because there's something we just need to notice here. First is this. What we believe really matters, guys. What we believe really matters. If we believe the wrong thing, we will do the wrong thing. Because what we do is precipitated by what we believe. And as a church, they had misunderstood their freedom in Christ, and it had led them deep into sin. And we can then we can do the same thing, and we can think that we are justified in what we're doing. Because what we believe is wrong. And so I want to encourage you to interrogate what you believe, to to read the Scripture, to dig into the Scripture, to ask questions of those you trust in the Lord, so that what you believe is good and solid and right. First thing. Second thing that we need to notice here before we carry on. The Scripture has really significant consequences for those who follow other religions. I would love to stand here and tell you guys all roads lead to God and it doesn't matter which person you worship. Ultimately, we all go before the same God and the same king and that's fine. But that is not what the scripture teaches us. It's not what Paul says. Paul is actually really clear and he's quite harsh. All right, when you when you recognize that not the principle that he's making is not just a principle, but it affects people. And he says those who follow other religions ultimately worship demons that purport to be God. Those religions are not neutral. They have demonic power which leads people away from God. Our faith is an exclusive faith. Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth. And he is the only life. And there is no other way to the Father except through him. And for us in the southern suburbs of Cape Town, that's... uh, That maybe is quite anticipated, but uh, Grant and I shared a lecturer when we were at seminary together called Dr. Harold, fantastic chap. Dr. Harold is an Indian guy who served at a church in Durban and came. a lot of their congregants came out of a Hindu background. And you can just ask him to share some stories of the degree of demonic activity that he had to deal with in the people who came out of those backgrounds because other gods are not neutral. Other religions are not neutral. There are demonic powers behind those things that trap people in bondage and keep them away from Jesus. Amen. Okay, that's the first thing the Corinthians believed. That's how Paul responds to it. I'm going to pick up a little bit more of that later, but here's the second one. Here's the second thing they believe. They they believe that Christian behavior should be determined by the correct knowledge and the freedom that we have in Christ. That was their understanding. That the Christian behavior is determined by having the right knowledge and, and understanding your freedom in Christ. And the way, where we get this understanding of what they believed from is the same three scriptures we looked at earlier, but you dig just a little bit deeper. You understand that behind... That that first idea is actually this idea they knew we all possess knowledge. They knew that an idol wasn't really a God. They knew there was only one true God. And so in knowing those things, they're like, we we understand there is a deeper truth. And we believe that because Christ has set us free, we have the right to do anything. So what I do and the decisions that I make are predicated on what I know to be true and the freedom that I have in Jesus to, to action that. Do you see that? Right? That's what they're thinking. That's what they're doing here. So Paul responds to this way of thinking, and he says to them that, guys, you've actually, unfortunately, you've adopted the wrong paradigm for decision-making as a Christian. See, as Christians, he says to them, our decisions are based on more than what is right and wrong and more than what we simply have a right to do. And I want you to just notice the irony in this moment. They thought they had the rights to pursue these things. And so Paul addresses them as though that were the case, but we've just seen that he's actually told them you don't have the right to pursue this thing. You must flee idolatry. Right? It's the convolution of the argument I was talking about earlier. So let's look at how he responds to this deeper idea. We're going to see that Paul now calls out there's a moral flaw in their thinking even though, as we've already seen, they're factually incorrect as well. When Grant picks up chapter 9 next week, part of chapter 9 fits into this broader question of the moral flaw in their line of thinking. So let's go to chapter 8, verses 1 and verse 3. All right, we read earlier, we all we know that all we all possess knowledge, but, Paul says to them, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Whoever loves God is known by God. So right at the very beginning of this section, Paul opens with their first problem. He says, Corinthians, you you are running after the wrong thing. You have elevated the wrong thing. You think that knowledge and wisdom are the supreme values in our faith, but you have missed the heart of the gospel. The gospel is about love, not knowledge. Gospel is about love, not knowledge. See, the gospel brings us into community, not into isolation. The gospel causes us to really care about our brothers and sisters in the faith. And you and you think you can do this with knowledge. That's the tragic thing with the Corinthians. But I want to tell you, Corinthian church, that knowledge doesn't have that same result. Knowledge ultimately separates us from one another. It elevates one person above another, but love equalizes us. Love draws us together into unity. And so Paul's now going to expand on this idea in a moment. But I want you to... Like, there's a beautiful moment of irony that, that I just want you to catch here because I love finding these moments in the Scripture and I want to share them with you. Right? Paul contrasts love and knowledge and he also pairs them with the results. He says, love builds people up. Knowledge puffs people up. Right? i got one hand. What's deeply ironic is that the Corinthian people who thought they were free to engage in this practice thought that they were now building up people they considered to be weaker brothers by explaining and sharing with them the knowledge that they had. But they weren't building them up at all. They were actually leading them into a practice that Paul has forbidden. So this is a really beautiful moment of irony. You'll also notice, just by the way, in this particular instance in Scripture where Paul speaks about the weaker brother, and I want to use that in quotation marks, Right. It's often nice to associate and to say, no, but I, I'm like the more mature brother. I understand better than my weaker brother, whose conscience is not able to deal with these things. Notice in this moment, the people who thought they were the stronger brother actually were wrong, and the people who were the weaker brother actually had the right conviction before the Lord. Okay, sidebar. Right, so now let's. Paul's going to tease us out a little bit further down, chapter eight. So he's going to speak verses nine to twelve. He says, now be careful, church. However, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person also be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And so this brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And when you sin against them in this way, you wound their conscience and you sin against Christ. See, what the Corinthians had failed to understand is... Because they were saved did not mean they were carbon copies of one another. That each one of us, as we gather here this morning, we love Jesus, but we are different. We have different characters. We have different personalities. We have different giftings. There are different circumstances that each of us were saved out of our sin and brought to God. There are different strengths and weaknesses that each of us have. And just because God has saved you out of a sinful past does not make you immune to the trap of sin forevermore. See, in Corinth, a lot of the church members had formerly been worshippers of pagan gods. And they had gone to those feasts. And they had attended those temples. And they had participated in those activities as a part of their normal life. And now there's some guys in the church who are saying, hey, brother, you're free, brother. You're free. You, You don't have to worry about that anymore. Right, you're free in Christ, so it doesn't matter. You're not serving Aphrodite or Artemis or Artemis. those those gods aren't even real anymore. So come, come join me at their temple. What does it matter? It's just food. Aphrodite isn't a god. So pull and join us. It's fine. It's lacquer. They had failed to understand what that meant for the brother and sister they were inviting to join them, because whilst they had been set free from their past life, that doesn't mean that they want they were free from temptation. It didn't mean that they wanted to go back to the scene of much of their former idolatry. It didn't mean that it was an easy or a safe place for them to be. So Paul says to them, can can you not see that by taking your brother and sister back to the place of their former worship, you are putting them into a dangerous place. You are bringing them back to a place where they are vulnerable, a place where they are susceptible to falling back into their old ways. And that if they do, if they happen to go back into those ways, their very salvation will be in jeopardy. Because they may choose to revert back to the idol worship out of which they were saved. And so if you think that you are building them up by doing this, there is nothing loving in what you are doing. You think you bring freedom in Christ, but actually you drag people into destruction. It reminds us of Jesus calling the Pharisees blind guides. So Paul says, Instead of doing that, there is another way. There is a different paradigm. Follow the way of love. Chapter 8 verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So if you really loved your community, you would choose to limit your freedom. Not because you have to. Not because there's a requirement that says in order to be a Christian, you must do this and you must not do that. But because true love sacrifices itself for a brother or a sister. The real motivation for your actions is not knowledge. It's this. Chapter 10, 31 to 33. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I, Paul, myself, I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Do you want a tr- paradigm for, for true Christian disciple, decision-making? I want to say disciple-making. Here it is. Whatever you do, whether in freedom or in voluntary sacrifice, do it for the glory of God. That's why you are here. That's why God hasn't taken you home yet. You exist for the glory of God. You want to know what brings God glory? Don't seek first your own good, but first seek the good of many. Seek that others might be saved. That's why you are here. That's the second part of our message this morning. And we're now going to jump into the Corinthians. Third line of thinking. Final, shortest section of the message. We're coming close, I promise. Right, here we go. This is the last thing the Corinthians thought. They thought, Paul, because I am saved and I have participated and I continue to participate in the sacraments, my salvation is secure. Right, so as when we ask, where do we get this? How do I know the Corinthians thought this? Well, we have to infer a little bit more than we had to infer for the first two. But we, we look at the first 13 verses of chapter 10. And in the first four verses of that, Paul addresses these ideas with barely veiled references to the Old Testaments and how they were displayed in Israel. And then he also comments in, in verse 12 of chapter 10. So let's look at that. He says in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 10, I don't want you to be ignorant, Corinthian church, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, and they all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink. For well, they drank from the rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Can you see in this passage those, those references to communion and baptism? All right. Do you see them there? That's what Paul is, is wanting to draw, draw out of that section. And he wants to do it, he wants to do two things. He wants to, he keeps using the word all because the Corinthians think that their salvation is is totally secure because they have participated in these things and Paul is going to show them that that wasn't true for the Israelites. And so he uses the word all to say all of them participated in these sacraments that, that you see as being really valuable. And the second thing he's going to do is he's going to say just as As a church, when we participate in the sacraments, when we watch a baptism, and when we take communion together, those sacraments remind us of what Jesus has done and the salvation that we have, correct? That's what we celebrate in those moments. He says, well, for the Old Testament people of Israel, it was the same thing. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see how often does God refer to himself as, I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt, Right, I am the God who provided for your ancestors in the wilderness. Those moments that they had were reminders for them of the salvation of God in their lives. And so Paul draws this analogy. We call it in theology, we call it typology. It's where we get the word prototype from. Where something stands as a representative of the things that follow. And so Paul uses this line of argumentation, this typology, and he says, The old people of God, the Israelite community, they experienced communion, they experienced baptism. And they all experienced those things. He also says to them in verse 12 of chapter 10, he says, If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And what I want us to notice out of that is they thought they were standing firm, which is why Paul makes that statement. They thought they were secure in the sacraments that they were a part of and the things that they had experienced. So then Paul now addresses this idea. And he says from verse 5 to 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. They all participated in these things, but God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. This is the moment when Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God and Aaron makes a golden calf and Moses comes down and the people are worshiping and they're eating and they're drinking in front of the calf and they're partying next door. Paul says, don't be idolaters like they were. He said, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died. So we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to us as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So with this response, Paul takes thinking, and he just cuts it off at the knees. He says, guys, you think that you're safe because you've been baptized, because you've taken communion, but so did the Israelites. And most of them died in the deserts. And then it goes on to list four examples where the Israelites failed and God judged them, and large numbers of them died. And each of these examples parallels what is happening in the Corinthian church in this moment for this practice. he says, first of all, it was idolatry. Just like the Israelites committed in the desert, so what you're doing now is idolatry. And just like the Israelites that that led them to debauchery and sexual immorality, that's what's happening for some of you. You're going to these temples, you're eating, you're drinking, you're getting drunk, and you're going and engaging in illicit behavior that you shouldn't be engaging in. And just like the Israelites, they put God to the test, so now Corinthians, you are putting Christ to the test by refusing to be obedient to what He's called you to. And just as what the Israelites did was rebellion to God, so because I've already told you in the letter that I wrote you not to do this, You are in rebellion to my authority. His reasoning is really clear. He says we must not make the same mistakes that they did. Their mistakes are written down for us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil, which is what you are doing, Corinthian church, as you pursue this practice. That is essentially what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 10. Apart from a brief aside at the end of chapter 10, where Paul now provides a little bit of ad hoc teaching to the related issue of meat that has come from a temple of an idol but is now sold in the marketplace. And uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to dig into that today, but I'll give you the nutshell. He says this. He says, as a Christian, you really are free to eat this meat. You're free to take this meat home, eat it in your house. Right? It's like you're free to buy halal meat at checkers and eat it at home. You are not worshipping Allah when you do that. But if an unbeliever, Paul says, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner, and then someone in their home tells you that it's idle food, then you should not eat it. So if you go to their home and no one says anything, then you're free to eat whatever's put before you. It's totally fine. But if there's someone else, a friend that the unbeliever has that's also at dinner with you, and they say, hey Brad, listen, actually this food may not be okay for you to eat then in order to avoid them feeling embarrassed, even though you are free to eat it, rather refrain from eating it because they've tried to show concern for your conscience and so honor that concern that they've shared. All right? That's the last part of chapter 10. So let's wrap up and, and let's ask the question, what does an ancient practice of eating meat sacrificed to idols mean for us today as 21st century Christians where most of us don't go to temple and sacrifice calves and uh, sheep? Four things I want to share with you. Also, if you're going to go to pagan temples and sacrifice cars and sheep, probably don't, right? It's real easy. Four things. First one is this, and and it feels like this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it because I think it's important to say. We cannot mix Christianity with other religions. You cannot mix Christianity with other religions. And there are some churches today who say you can can do Christian tarot card reading as a means of... textualizing evangelism. On the other hand, some Christians want to maintain their veneration of Jesus, but they also want to continue to pray to their ancestors or to visit witch doctors. Paul will say to you, and I will say to us, none of those are okay. Neither of those are okay. They are a form of idolatry. It is an incorporation of pagan worship rites and practices into the exclusive worship of Jesus. And it's a form of sin. It is open rebellion to God and it leads to destruction. And so if any of you are mixing things into your faith, things from the New Age, things from Wicca, things from ancestral worship or any other religion, I want to say to you this morning, you've got to stop now. Stop doing it. If you have friends that are engaged in these things and they call themselves Christians, you need to say to them, guys, you are deceiving yourself by thinking you can worship Jesus and continue in these practices. God calls you to stop because you are placing your salvation at stake. That's the first one. Second thing for us to think about as we take home, love, freedom, and rights as a guide for behavior. Through these two chapters, Paul addresses these principles and how they relate to the choices we make and the things that we do. And it's important that we apply them to our lives correctly. Correctly. Because we are free in Christ. Paul tells the Galatian church, he says, it is essentially for freedom that Christ has set you free. Christ has not set you free so that you would remain in bondage. We are free in Christ. And because of that freedom, I do have the right to engage in certain decisions and certain behaviors. And out of this section, that would be eating meat that has been come from an idol, bit, buying it in the marketplace and eating it at home. But... The call for us to recognize and understand is my decisions are guided first and foremost by love. Love God and love others, right? That was what Jesus said. The law and the prophets can be summarized into those two things. My decisions and why I make decisions can be summarized into those two things. What decision or behavior brings God the most glory? What decision or behavior embodies the most love for my brothers and sisters in Christ? See, the Christian ethic for decision-making is fundamentally selfless. It considers others ahead of myself, and it makes judgments for their sake before it makes judgments for my sake. That's the second thing for us to think about as we go home. The third is this. I think there's significance in our environments. So in these two chapters, Paul addresses the practice of eating at the temples, and then he also talks about Eating the same meat now in your own home or in the home of another. And there are some parallels for us to consider today. And I want to suggest that we think through some of these. Some practices that we engage in have religious origins. Some yoga or martial arts come from the East, there are religious connotations attached to them. So if you are engaging in those practices, and I'm not telling you that by doing that you're inherently in idolatry and your salvation is at stake, what I want you to consider though is the context of your engagement. Does your dojo or your sensei embody the religious origin of martial arts? Does, does the practice of that discipline involve teaching you about spirituality or energy flows? Or are you learning how to punch? Does your yoga instructor embody Eastern philosophy in your instruction? Are there statues or representations of Buddha in the place that you go to do yoga? Perhaps you need to find a different thing to practice or a different place to practice. What about nightclubs or bars? See, whilst there might be a freedom for us to go there, we need to ask ourselves a question, in exercising that freedom... Do I, A, is there is there a dark connection in my past? Is that a place that I was saved out of, where this is a dangerous place for me to go? And by going back there, I'm placing my own salvation in jeopardy because the temptation for me is deep and real as I engage in this place. Or in my going there, am I inviting others or endorsing others to come along and join me in this place where that might be a connection that they have and that by them thinking that it's okay because I'm there, they might find themselves in danger of falling back into an old way of life. Something for us to think about as we make our choices. Finally, again, seems a little bit obvious, but we need to say that salvation is not a license to sin. Sometimes it is, it, there is the warning that we need to hear. Because Paul has said a couple of times to the Corinthians that there are some sins that are open, unrepentant rebellion against God. And if you continue in a sin like that, you may find yourself, like the Israelites, dead in the desert. Friends, God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. That's also in chapter 10. But sometimes the way of escape is simply to flee. It is simply to run away. Paul says this twice to the Corinthian church so far in the letter. He says in chapter 6, verse 18, he says, You need to run away from sexual immorality. He says here in chapter 10 verse 14 that you need to flee from idolatry because these are not temptations that you should be flirting with. They are not things that, that are small and little that, that it's okay to ask the question where the line is. These are things that are so antithetical to who we are as Christians that you need to get away. Flee from idolatry. Flee from sexual immorality. Salvation is not a license for us to sin. Okay, I'm done. I'm going to close for us in prayer. Al, would you and the team join and close for us in a song? Al said he was going to discern which song we're going to sing, so we're going to see how that's gone. But let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God to us, that you love us deeply, you care about us, and that you long to lead us into life. And so we just want to pray as we consider what you have written to the Corinthian church and we ask the question, God, how, how do you want to use that to shape us and mold us today? I want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just increase in us the love that we have for one another. It is sometimes so easy to view our life through the lens of what is best for me first. And I just pray, God, that you would give us a grace as a church to recognize how important our choices and our decisions are towards one another. And that we would in joy and freedom look to make choices that bring up the best in the lives of others. That we would do our best to remove obstacles from the gospel for the sake of others. And that we would love them in the things and the choices that we make. I want to pray, Lord Jesus, that if there are any places in our lives where we have allowed aspects of other faiths to to still be a part of our life while we continue to follow you. Jesus, I want to pray now for the gracious conviction of your spirit. That you would cut those things out of our hearts. That you would lead us in your kindness in repentance. That we would be able to follow freely after you. Thank you, God. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you do not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. So help us, God, to follow your spirit. In things that would lead us into darkness, may we run in the opposite direction. Towards our God and King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.